Chapter 15 of Napoleon, A Short Biography. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Russell Newton. Napoleon, A Short Biography by R. M. Johnson. Chapter 15, The Campaign of France. Napoleon's Last Defense, Saint Dizier, Brienne, La Rothier, Montmirail, Léon, Châtillon, Fall of Paris, Abdication, The Final Scene at Fontainebleau. Driven from Russia in 1812, from Germany in 1813, Napoleon was now in 1814, preparing to defend France. Yet peace had always been within his reach, and even after so many disasters, when the Allies were mustering half a million of men on the frontiers of exhausted France, she might still have retained the natural frontiers won by the Republic, the Alps and the Rhine. During the last few months negotiations proceeded at Frankfurt and Chalons, but beneath the diplomatic superficialities and wranglings was the unmistakable fact that Napoleon was always thinking of victory rather than of peace. He aimed at regaining the whole of his position, and would not accept a diminished portion. He was the man of success, and could not acknowledge defeat. His strategy, usually so sound, was weakened by the extravagant possibilities of victory his ardent imagination evoked. He forgot that soldiers were not machines, always equally responsive to their driver's impulsion, and believed that by military means, such as his genius could devise, he could plant the French eagles once more in Berlin and on the Vistula. To retain his hold on Germany, he'd left 150,000 men in her fortresses from Dresden to Hamburg and Danzig. These were now swallowed up and useless, while in France there were not enough soldiers to guard the Rhine. The remnants of the army that had retreated from Leipzig had been distributed along the frontier, but typhus broke out among the troops and caused immense losses. When the Austrians, Prussians, and Russians, some 200,000 strong, crossed the Rhine at the beginning of 1814, they met with no resistance and slowly advanced into a country where there was apparently no army to oppose them. To understand the extraordinary military events that followed, a glance at the accompanying map is necessary. Paris was the objective of the Allies, and there were three converging routes by which they might advance. The first of these ran southeast from the Rhine through Namur and Léon. The second, starting from points on the Rhine between Mayence and Basel, followed roads converging about Vitry and Chalons, and thence took the valley of the Marne to the capital. The third was parallel to the second and to the south of it, following the valley of the Seine. As the campaign opened, the great force of the Allies, under the supreme command of Schwarzenberg, accompanied by the emperors of Austria and Russia and the king of Prussia, had reached the Marne and Seine unopposed. Blucher with 70,000 Prussians and Russians was on the northern road, Schwarzenberg with 150,000 Austrians on the southern. Napoleon had now collected about 50,000 men, mostly raw recruits, at Chalons, and marched rapidly up the Marne Valley, striking Blucher's advance from Saint-Dizier on the 27th of January. Fierce fighting followed, and Blucher, unable to hold his ground, retreated, abandoning the line of the Marne and marching south toward Schwarzenberg. Napoleon followed hard, 
overtook and surprised the Prussians at Brienne on the 29th, and there once more drove them off the field. And here it may be as well to note the peculiar advantage Napoleon had in this campaign. He was fighting on his own ground. The name of Brienne has once before appeared in this history, for here it was that Napoleon had passed most of his schoolboy days. How little could he foresee then that he would one day surprise and nearly capture a Prussian commander-in-chief in the old chateau where he had investigated the initial mysteries of mathematics and literature. But the Austrians were now at hand. On the day following his defeat at Brienne, Blücher effected his junction with Schwarzenberg. Napoleon determined to make an attempt to bar their advance. He selected a strong position at La Rotier, and there fought a desperate defensive battle against immensely superior numbers on the 1st of February. Making up for his lack of infantry and cavalry, by employing and risking the loss of immense batteries, he made a gallant defense, and at nightfall was still maintaining the fight. But the French army had lost too severely and was too exhausted to renew the engagement, and in the night Napoleon retreated down the valley of the Seine, eventually taking position at Nogent. He was now extremely dejected, and it may be that, for a few days at this time, his instructions to Collingcourt for negotiating a peace were sincere, but the aspect of affairs soon changed. The victory at La Rothier made Blucher and Schwarzenberg lose sight of the extraordinary and indomitable resource of their enemy. The original scheme was resumed, and Blucher returned to the valley of the Marne, leaving Schwarzenberg to follow that of the Seine. From Nogent, Napoleon eagerly watched their movements. With a detached corps, he demonstrated in Schwarzenberg's front and delayed his advance. Then, timing his march with marvelous precision, he suddenly moved north towards the valley of the Marne. Blucher was advancing westward along the road that follows that valley, there being about three days' march between his front and rear divisions. On the 10th of February, Napoleon struck this long column at its center, destroying that, and turning right and left in the course of the next two days, completely shattered the Prussian army, the principal engagements being fought at Champaubert, Montmorail, and Vauchamps. Blucher beat a disordered retreat, and Napoleon was so elated at his brilliant success that he confidently declared that one more such victory would carry the French arms to central Germany. But while this fighting was proceeding in the Valley of the Marne, Schwarzenberg had pushed up on the Valley of the Seine and was now getting threateningly near Paris. The Emperor could not pursue Blucher, but fell back near the capital to watch the Austrian movements and decided to try against Schwarzenberg the same strategy that has succeeded so well against Blucher. He rapidly transferred his army from the Valley of the Marne to the Valley of the Seine once more, struck the Austrian line of advance in flank, and severely handled their columns in a series of engagements, of which those at Nangis and Montereau only need be mentioned, February 17 to 22. On the 23rd of February, Napoleon had advanced as far as Troyes, and Schwarzenberg was falling back in full retreat. These wonderfully brilliant results, this appearance of success, proved elusive. The reinforcements sent from Paris to the army barely sufficed to fill the gaps caused by casualties, disease, and the wholesale desertions of the conscripts. There was a dearth, too, of muskets, 
and the withdrawal of troops from the southern army under Seoul had enabled Wellington to get a foothold north of the Pyrenees. While Napoleon, though successful, saw his strength decrease, the defeated allies were being daily reinforced. A large number of fresh troops had now joined Blucher, while other corps had begun operations in the direction of Léon, and after much hesitation and debate, the assembled monarchs, statesmen, and generals of the Allies decided that the march on Paris must be resumed. Blucher once more advanced down the valley of the Marne, and this time reached Meaux before Napoleon could arrest his movement. No sooner, however, had Blucher realized that the Emperor was once more nearing his flank than he hastily crossed to the further bank of the Marne, March 3rd, and retreated towards the north. Napoleon pursued and maneuvered to surround the Prussians, but was unsuccessful, partly owing to the advance of fresh Allied corps down the Nemur-Léon-Paris road. On the 7th, a severe action was fought at Crayon, with little result. Blucher, however, retreated, and on the 9th at Léon once more offered battle, and this time with success. Napoleon was severely defeated and retreated to Reims. Still hoping for success, however, and learning that Schwarzenberg was again on the march for Paris, he left Reims and marched hurriedly southward to attack the Austrians once more. On the 20th of March, the French advance guard came into contact with an Austrian column at arcis sur Soon, the whole of Napoleon's little army was in action, but the emperor discovered, when it was too late to disengage himself, that it was not an isolated Austrian corps, but the whole of Schwarzenberg's army that faced him. The odds were too great, and though Napoleon rode through the fiercest fire, apparently courting death, he could not avert a crushing defeat. Beaten by both Prussians and Austrians, his army shattered, all hope of success now seemed lost. But Napoleon played one last desperate card. Instead of retreating towards Paris, he issued orders for the army to march northeast toward the Rhine. His object was to base himself on the frontier fortresses, to sweep aside the Allied forces blockading them, and to operate against Schwarzenberg's and Blucher's lines of communications. It was a defensible move from a strictly military point of view, but it was feeble politically, for there was now a Bourbon movement forming, and Napoleon had driven France to such a pass that peace would have appeared a cheap blessing to nearly all men at any cost. At Paris was a weak government. The Empress, the King of Rome, Joseph Bonaparte, with few troops, little hope, and no ability. An occupation of the city would mean the proclamation of the Bourbons and the downfall of Napoleon. Detaching a large force of cavalry to mask his movements, Schwarzenberg risked his line of communications, pushed straight on for Paris, effected his junction with Blucher in the neighborhood of Meaux, and on the 29th of March, arrived under the walls of the capital. One day earlier, Napoleon at Dulevin realized that his maneuver had not drawn his opponents from their objective, and that Paris was in imminent danger. He decided to start for the capital. He traveled post-haste, taking a southerly route by the Sand Valley, leaving the army to follow him. On the evening of the 30th, he reached Fontainebleau with his few attendants, where he received reports that heavy fighting had been going on before Paris, and that it had capitulated. He continued his journey, and a few miles further on, met the troops that had just left the city by the terms of capitulation. 
General Belliard urged him to give up all thought of proceeding, and he turned back to Fountainebleau, where he took up his quarters in the palace. The game had been played out to the bitter end, and Napoleon had lost. He could still muster fifty thousand men at Fountainebleau, and for a day or two he threatened to continue the struggle, but France was fast turning from him. A provisional government, of which the chief member was Talleyrand, had proclaimed the restoration of the Bourbons, and even the marshals were anxious to put an end to the frightful eighteen months' drama that had cost a million lives and that had shaken their allegiance to their old comrade and emperor. The hard facts of the situation were too great for even Napoleon to conquer, and on the 4th of April he signed a formal abdication. A week later, he concluded a personal treaty with the Allies, whereby he was granted the sovereignty of the little island of Elba off the coast of Tuscany, the title of emperor, and an annual revenue of two million francs, payable by the French government. While these negotiations were proceeding, the new king, Louis XVIII, had made his entry into Paris surrounded by a group of marshals, all wearing the white cockade of the Bourbons. On the 20th of April, Napoleon's traveling carriage was ready for his conveyance as soon as one last ceremony should have been duly accomplished. A few hundred veterans, the remains of the old guard, were drawn up in the courtyard of the palace for the last parade, for the last farewell. Then, at last, emotion broke down the indomitable courage, the pitiless intellect of the great captain. When in front of that splendid setting of presented bayonets and somber faces, grim under the tall bearskins, he saw the tattered tricolor, the flag of Lodi, of Marengo, of Austerlitz, lowered to him for the last time, he was suddenly overpowered, and seizing the glorious symbol, he buried his head in its folds and sobbed. That dramatic scene portended much, for it was not only the Emperor Napoleon whom the Bourbons were displacing, but also Napoleon the child of the Revolution. Their white standard had displaced not only the flag of the Empire, but that of the Republic. Chronology 27 January, 1814, Saint-Dizier 29 January, Brienne 1st February, La Rothier 10th February, Champaubert. 13th February, Montmarais. 17th February, Nanges. 7th of March, Crayon. 9 of March, Léon. 13 March, 1814, Wellington enters Bordeaux. 20th March, Arcis-sur-Aube. 30th March, Paris capitulates. 4th of April, Abdication of Napoleon. 11th of April, Treaty of Fountainebleau. End of chapter 15